0: Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your temporary host, Jason Rosenbaum. Chris McDaniel is doing newscasts today. Joining me in studio is... Joe Manis. And the pride of St. James, Missouri...
1: (laughs) Jack Cardetti.
0: We are continuing on our epic series of looking at some of the the behind-the-scenes players in Missouri politics and... It, it's it's really an honor for you to be here because i don't know if anybody knows this but we are both on the 30 under 30 list in the columbia missouri and i think, believe in 2007 so this is a magical moment here i yeah. think
1: chase daniel may have trumped us on that list though i,
0: I feel like i'm more successful than him <laughs> at this point so.
2: yeah many of us i know jack from the old days i mean jack is one of the younger uh, consultants around when he was the spokesman for the Missouri Democratic Party, which is what, almost 10 years ago?
0: Sure. And I, I also remember you from the old days because you and Paul Sloka used to get into it all the time. And now not so much anymore. You're in different well, parts Paul of your life. Well, Paul
2: Sloka letter. is now spokesman for Blaine, Blaine Lippenmeyer. Lippenmeyer, So,
0: But before we get into a nostalgia fest, tell us a little bit about your humble beginnings in the Phelps County metropolis of St. James, Missouri. Is it in
1: Phelps County? Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, I didn't actually grow up in a real political family. My parents, uh, dad owned a small business. My mom's a nurse. Uh, They certainly voted every election and (laughs) took me into the the ballot box with them. But we, you know, we weren't around politics all that much. I really sort of, some of my first experiences, I would always go to the local coffee shop with my grandpa. And inevitably, everyone would sit around the table and they would talk about the weather. They'd talk about farming. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, politics would come up. and, And it was out of that experience, I got a real appreciation for people People that it wasn't always the people that yelled the loudest or or, or or were the most partisan but the people that really could make good salient points about uh, politics and government that sort of caught my attention and it's sort of been an interest ever since
2: that's that's really interesting were your parents active in a particular particular political party? Were the independents? or
1: No, like most Missourians, they're classic uh, ticket splitters. Okay, I can remember going into the polls with my dad where he would vote for Kit Bond uh, on one line, and then he would vote for the pride of Phelps County, Mel Carnahan on the other. Right,
0: right. Because Phelps County, I guess, it's represented by Republicans in both the Senate and the House now, but it does have kind of a Democratic history with Mel Carnahan. And even pretty recently, uh, Frank Barnett's representative in, in the Senate. So... It has a democratic underlying. History. Yeah,
1: it's a classic sort of Southern Missouri county where, to this day, the presiding commissioner uh, and several of the county uh, courthouse elected officials are Democrats. Um, but on federal issues, they've tended to, to go a little bit more Republican. Um, but we see that uh, the exact opposite happening in places like St. Louis County. I mean, Joe, you'll remember it wasn't that long ago where basically whoever won St. Louis County in a statewide race would yes. probably win the election. Nowadays, Democrats take tens of thousands of vote margins. st louis county so the the demographics are shifting in missouri but they're shifting in both directions now
2: now now, okay so you grew up how'd you get involved in this i mean how'd you get started because you were one of the younger spokesmen that i dealt with 10 years ago
1: absolutely so i went to college at the university of missouri i i I moved to columbia and i've never left actually Mm -hmm. my wife and three kids we still live there um and then i applied for a job as the lowest low man on the totem pole at the attorney general's office, in his press office.
2: Now, who was the attorney general at the time, Nixon?
1: Then Attorney General Jay Nixon. Mary Still was the communications director. I worked for there for two years and then uh, went and became Governor Holden's press secretary. Mm. Uh, Governor Holden lost in the primary. My wife and I went to New Orleans for a couple days. In 2004. And the phone rang. This is back when we had landlines. Um, (laughs) And when I got back from New Orleans, the phone rang and it was Claire McCaskill on the other line. And Claire said, hey, you can go back to the governor's office. No one For the next six months, no one will begrudge you, or you can start tomorrow at the Missouri Democratic Party as the communications director.
0: Yeah, and the rest is history because you were the communications director from what, 2000, I guess 2004?
1: Yeah, the very end of the 04 cycle. To 2008. uh, To 2008 when Governor Nixon was elected. Now,
0: let's kind of talk about your tenure as a spokesperson because I think this was a time when the political parties may have been a little bit more powerful than they are now, because I guess a lot more money went to them as opposed to individual candidates. Part was candidates. because
2: of campaign donation limits, because the candidates can only get so much. So donors would often give, they could give larger amounts to the state party. So they did.
0: And my point is, you were often the point man. I mean, I called you a bunch, Joe probably called you <laughs> even more, to respond to basically every issue. and, and During your tenure, Matt Blunt was governor, so you were probably attacking him left and right, essentially.
1: Yeah, there was a period, um, you know— in the early 2000s where the, the political parties in Missouri were the sort of the center of political gravity in the state. And partly, uh, Joe's absolutely right, is is focused on that's when there were strict campaign contribution limits which meant that the party apparatus, the power party, uh, you know, organizing tools as well as their ability to take soft money was a, a big factor. And so a lot of the organizing both on the political side but also on the message side um, was coor- coordinated directly through the party. And it was really, a, it was a great time to be at the party, um, you know, it, it, I can remember, and it just shows you in Missouri how quickly election cycles take. I remember the 04 election, how down Democrats were after Matt Blunt won that election. And then you fast forward two years later, uh, you know, and Claire's, Claire's victory in the U.S. Senate race really was a turning point for Democrats here in the state. And that
0: also, from a state legislative level, Wes Schumacher won, uh, Frank Barnett's won, um, I, I think there were some other Senate, senators and House members that won. That was a up year for Democrats yeah, across o,
1: the board. Yeah, 06 gained, 06, uh, you know, both the statewide, Democrats won. Um, but we actually gained seats in both the House yes. and the Senate for the first time in, I think, 20 years. Yes.
2: Now, okay. now, fast forward to 2008, then at, at the end of, two, by the end of 2008, donation limits are out the window. And then, of course, there's 2009 and Nixon is sworn in as governor. But did the parties see, like, just a sudden plummet in income or kind of what happened? Uh, because the party's role now is so much smaller than it was then. As I said, I think it was because of donation limits, but I just wondered if the change took place, like, overnight or if it was more gradual.
1: It was pretty sudden. Um, I mean, once state candidates, is still different on the federal level, but once state candidates were able to to take in unlimited amount of contributions, I mean, it fundamentally changed. Uh, change the role of the party. There's always going to be a communication role at the party. There's always going to be sort of an organizing role, especially in federal races. Um, But it did happen and it happened fairly quickly because after all, candidates want to control as much money as they can. And frankly, donors want as much credit as they can possibly get. So that dynamic uh, did take place very quickly. So
2: you moved then to private no, no, no,
0: you skipped over in a very important part of his okay, career. All right, sorry. <laughs> in 2008, 2009, you became uh, communications director for Jay Nixon. Yeah, correct,
2: correct. yeah, I was skipping over that. So, yeah,
1: the, the the governor offered, and we had sort of had an arrangement where I would come in for the, the very first, initial year or so of his term as governor i ended up staying a year and a half the first two covering the first two legislative sessions and and really i mean being the spokesman or communications director for the for the governor is frankly it's the best job in missouri it's a stressful job it's a humbling job but it's a great job just being able to take really complex Governmental issues and sort of being the the voice not only for the specific governor but for the state. Uh, it's really humbling and and it's it's a. Uh sort of role in a position I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah, I was kind to I
0: was kind of thinking about this earlier. I think from 2009 to 2010, while there certainly were battles in the legislature over stimulus money of all things, yes, it seems like the battles between the legislature and the governor were kind of less pronounced back then. You had people like Charlie Shields and Ron Richard, who I think are a little bit more pragmatic and less partisan, who were in charge. And it was before the Tea Party wave of 2010 when the legislature could Change that doesn't necessarily mean that it was all sunshine and lollipops between the GOP-controlled legislature and the governor's office. But it does seem like when you were communications director, it was a different te- tenor and tone between the two. Is that fair, or am I wrong? There? No,
1: I, I think so. I think that, that that in that time, what you had is a governor and a legislature that had some of the same priorities. Uh, mostly uh, out of necessity. Obviously, it was the Great Recession, and jobs and the economy were really front and center. They maybe had different approaches on how they wanted to go about uh, building a better economy, um, but you really had uh, a lot of common interest there. I mean, look at that—that that summer of 2010, when when people were, um, you know, yelling uh, bailout. At the top of the auto yeah. bailouts At the top of Young At their lungs The the, the Governor Nixon brought people together And, and were able to uh, In a special session Get the Ford deal done That not only has helped Ford On the western side of the state It's been a great help to GM here And, and helped us And that's just That's one of the examples And where pensions the, I mean
0: Illinois would be Salivating over getting pensions done that early. I know that was a little more controversial, but that was a big
1: deal. I would yeah, getting
2: say, the, yeah, changing the state pension plan slightly. Yeah. And the big
1: deal is, is when you when you make a big reform like that, and that was a big reform pension, you can do it on the front end when you see a problem coming. And you probably have more flexibility than if you try to handle something when there's already a catastrophe in front of you. And I think that's some states like Illinois are facing that now. I think the governor and others had a good vision that let's do this, let's do it in a way that's fair to workers, but let's, let's really get our arms around the problem before it's out of control. What was your most challenging
0: episode of being communications director?
1: You know, I, I think it's the, just the daily, um, I think it's the day-to-day legislative session. I mean, what, what reporters, not to knock uh, the two fine reporters on here today, <laughs> right. though. but re- <laughs> reporters naturally want to write about contention. You know, they want, the new political news gathering is set up to say one side says this or does this, the other side does that. And, and one of the frustrating things, and one of the things you have to work hard on is to point out, you know, that, that there's a lot of shared vision and priorities and that people are, 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 are for the most part, um, working hand in hand. So that's, that's a constant problem when you're in the governor's office, especially when you do have a divided uh, state government.
2: Now, you were telling me before we went on the air – about a key difference, though, between when you were... This is how things have changed so much. When you were um, the communications director and now, because of what the news cycle is yeah. you're talking about that and because of tw- how it's changed everything bit. Yeah, I mean, a little I about mean when
1: of. I started as a spokesman in the attorney general's office years and years ago and even in the, the governor's office the first time under Holden I mean you really were working towards a 24-hour news cycle you your everything you did all day long was really to try to influence and try to uh show what was on the 10 o'clock news that night and then what was in the newspaper the next morning and you basically, what was on the, the news that night, what was in the paper the, the, the next morning, would dictate whether you won or lost the the day. Uh, now, there is literally a news cycle every five minutes, you know, with Twitter, with social media, with, um, you know, sort of these internet-based uh, news sites. Uh, you know, that, that that 24-hour news cycle isn't there anymore. And that really means that things are a lot faster, uh, that, that people want information a, a lot quicker. And, and there's a little less time to get in depth about actual issues. Now, uh,
0: yeah, let's kind of even go back to time like 2006 or seven when Joe, when I was starting out as a professional journalist and Joe was the head of the Political Fix blog, the main dissemination vehicle for electronic news were blogs, essentially, which allowed you to go relatively in depth. You could write as long, long as much as you wanted there. I mean, I remember on the now defunct CDT politics blog writing 10 or 12 posts a day and going crazy. And now with Twitter, I mean, it's gotten much shorter, a lot more concise. We're talking 140 characters. And people are tweeting like every two seconds, basically. So
2: Yeah, or like you'll, you'll direct it to your site. You know, like, you know, I'll tweet to a story that I just posted on stlpublicradio.org. And But yeah, it's very different than what it was. I've, I still have press people who say, what's your deadline? And it's like, uh, I'm running this now. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's, yeah, it'll be going up in maybe an hour. Maybe less. Yeah, and it's maybe. not
1: that it's a good or bad thing. It's just different. I mean, it, it's that how different. does
2: that affect what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of time it, it gives public officials uh, more sort of instruments in, in their political, in their messaging tool chest. Um, you know, but but it also makes for you have to have a very concise message, and you have to feed the beast quite a bit. Uh, yeah. So it's just a, it's a very different way of communicating with the press and with the public.
0: Yeah, and I was going to just ask him kind of to elaborate on that. I mean. I, I would be hard pressed for me to knock Twitter or social media because I'm on it so much I'd be a giant hypocrite but I, I have heard the rumblings that the reliance on that especially in political journalism both federally and Missouri maybe has made you know the discussion and discourse less substantive do you think that's a possibility or uh, what what do you think about I that I think
1: just because of the medium it it, it it for it forces journalists and it forces uh you know sort of, uh, press people and campaign people to, to, to focus a little more, probably too much on the actual horse race instead of the the issue at hand. Um, you know, it and that's just because of the, the constraints you have on time. It's the constraints you have on, on length. Um, you know, I like, I still like to read, uh, you know, good old-fashioned papers in the morning. I like to read about things, the the issues I don't know about. A lot of times, uh, you know, social media, you tend to focus your attention on sort of what is the reaction to the story of the day or what's the the, the horse race matchup. And I think that's something that uh, while it's good and it's instant, it it does change the focus of of sort of state government and campaign reporting.
2: So then you did, I mean, after I skipped over the part that Jason was right, after you left the governor's office, then you went to private. Correct. And wasn't that kind of uh, wasn't several Democratic consultants who went there? Explain all that.
1: Yeah. So I I joined a a consulting firm um, along with Ken Morley, who was the governor's uh, 2008 campaign manager uh, and several others. And uh, since then on, uh, a couple years later, we then left that Washington, D.C.-based firm and started our own firm, Tightline Strategies. We now um, are are located uh, across the country. Uh, you know, uh, from D.C. Uh, out to California. But I get, uh, luckily, focus most of my attention and energy here in Missouri.
2: So you're still based in Missouri. I live
1: here as opposed to a lot of the, the business partners I have or people in political consulting. I mostly, uh, you know, stay with the Missouri. I have enough clients in Missouri. I get to do uh, stuff here. And what it leads to is I, I, for the most part, get to sleep in my own bed uh, each night. How about that? Important.
2: Well, give us a sense of who some of your clients are without promoting any. I mean, just so we can... Sh- can, can show how things kind of change.
1: Well, sure. So we, we have, uh, you know, we've candidate uh, clients. You know, we did Governor Nixon's reelect, obviously. We did uh, Jason Kander's Secretary of State race when he became the youngest statewide official in America. And then we do a lot of ballot initiative work. I mean, back in 2012, uh, we ran the opposition to changes to the Missouri court plan. The Missouri nonpartisan court plan is uh, a, a big deal, uh, not only in Missouri, but in, you know, over 30 yeah, states. Yeah, that was a
0: really tough one considering the proponency's proponent side gave up before they started. So. Well
1: there's a reason they gave up. It was a flawed idea. And and, and there it, it uh we ended up defeating that seventy six to twenty four, one of the largest defeats of a constitutional amendment in the history of Missouri.
2: Yeah and that that was kind of unusual. So now who who are some of your clients this cycle?
1: Sure. And, and so right now in Missouri we are running the transportation tax proposal here. Um that was a really big thing that came out of the legislative cycle. You know, the knock on Jeff City is that, you know, that Big issues don't get tackled and that there's too much partisanship. And I think that was an issue where, you know, 105 reps voted for that, 22 senators. Yeah, and, and I have to say that was
0: out. it to going the legislative route again after it got filibustered in 2013. I was surprised that that was the avenue this time. I think on this show I called it like putting all the eggs in one basket with a giant hole in it. So I didn't think it was going to pass that way because of the filibuster. But by doing that, um, it's on the ballot. You don't have to spend the money to gather signatures, and you can kind of conserve your resources and energy for
1: what I think will be a tough campaign over the next few, few were
2: months. Were you surprised that it was put on the August ballot as opposed to November?
1: Um, we were a little surprised, but I do think it, you know, it helps us sort of continue that momentum we had out of the legislative session. I mean, this is such an unusual in, uh, issue just because transportation is such a core governmental service, and it's something that both Republicans and Democrats support. It's something that, frankly, business and labor support, which we don't see a lot of uh, here in Missouri. And it's something that while, you know, urban, suburban, and rural Missouri have different transportation needs. They all sort of coalesce around wanting to do something on transportation. So it'll it'll make for a fascinating campaign.
0: Now, you know, much has been made about Nixon uh, coming out in opposition to it. But I, I have another more public policy-related question. By putting it in August and by rapidly constricting the time to put the project list together, has he potentially put forward a scenario where the project list may not be as well thought out of if it ends up passing and maybe having those extra months may have allowed for you know, a better transportation policy for the state.
1: Well, I, I think, look, MoDOT uh, and, and and stakeholders across the country have been preparing for this for years. I mean, they've had Blue Rhythm and Commissions and other things. We know what the transportation needs are uh, here in Missouri. And, and, and lo- really, the thing is, they're locally based. I mean, the needs that we have in the city of St. Louis, you're looking at them doing a lot of transit and some other stuff for the first time because right now, Uh, the gas tax prohibited uh, from going to anything but roads and bridges Uh, their needs there are much different than the needs in in rural Missouri so people know what the needs are basically Um, it it is a a challenge to get that project list finalized and have the type of a public input but everybody knows uh, what sort of the major needs are Are there
2: other now one thing I want to make clear the governor is against the tax just so people know uh, which is makes it intriguing but second are there other clients that you have this cycle this year
1: So that's the big one on the ballot. Obviously, here in Missouri, it's a really unusual circumstance. For the first time in more than 20 years, we don't have a a presidential race, a gubernatorial race, or a U.S. Senate race on the ballot. And we
2: have a state auditor with no – Republican state auditor with no Democratic – Rival.
1: It, it is just a very mm-hmm. odd election cycle. Why This, do you think this that should was? happen every 12 years just by the nature of the terms. This should happen. We, we of course didn't have that 12 years ago in 02 because you had a special election for yeah, the U.S. Because, Senate race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So, yeah. so it, it really has been a long time since we've had this scenario. 1994. And that is going to lead to, to a uh, you know smaller size election come August but it, it's certainly not a uh, uh, because transportation has sort of this wide uh, support, it, it won't hurt our cause. Were
0: you, um, obviously much has been made about Schweik not having an opponent, but as a veteran of the 2006 election cycle and having covered the West Schumacher-Bob Bainan race extensively, I was more surprised that, you know, Brian Munslinger didn't get an opponent, Bob Dixon didn't get an opponent, Dan Brown, who defeated an incumbent, didn't get an opponent. A lot of these people who had defeated incumbents or faced tough races or districts that faced tough races unopposed this cycle. What do you think that says about how Missouri politics has changed, and do you think the Democrats might have missed an opportunity by challenging those incumbent senators and maybe trying to gain some— Because all of those men are, are Republicans. Gain some ground back, basically.
1: Yeah, look, I, I think one of the things the Democrats and the Democratic Party's in great hands. Obviously, Roy Temple, one really one of the smartest guys that, that I've ever been around. Missouri politics has a wealth of knowledge. I mean, I think they focused pretty narrowly on seats that they really want to take back. They've mm-hmm. done a good job recruiting those specific seats, and some of these seats that are, that, that quite frankly, um, the, the numbers for Democrats aren't well aren't good there, and it would take a longer shot campaign instead of uh, you know spreading your resources too thin. I think they've really focused in on a few seats where they think they can make a real difference. And those and, and seats obviously
0: are the the Jill Shoup, whoever the Republican comes out, the John the, Lamping uh, seat. Um, yeah, the 24th District yes, State Senate. The, the battle for Jeffco, which I'm surprised that's competitive, because if you go back to 2006, uh, Bill Alter was just blown out by Ryan McKenna that year. Jeffco has changed dramatically. And potentially the Ed for Jeannie Riddle seat, but I think that's going to be a tough race for Democrats because it's a Republican-leaning district, but yeah.
2: What's your take on the climate, how the climate in the state has changed? I mean, especially since you were, you mean you've been, until now, you were a, a spokesman for one Democrat or another. Is there anything particular that you've noticed that's changed as far as the state political climate?
1: Well, let's go back to our last general election, which is November of 2012. There were six statewide races up. Democrats won five of those. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is. But a, was this, that
2: because of the momentum caused by the whole Aiken McCaskill And, and that's
1: despite the fact that, that that President Obama lost the state by double digits. What really is at play here, and one of the the, the secrets of Missouri politics is there's a in non-presidential years. Republicans clearly, in my mind, have a little bit of advantage. In so presidential years, um, it, it's then incumbent upon Democrats to take advantage of that. But look, the not, the beautiful thing about Missouri is it's a great state to do politics in. Um, yes, it'd be easier to do be a Democrat in New York. It'd be easier to be a Republican in Utah. (laughs) But Missouri is a very closely contested state where, like I said before, uh, not unlike my parents, there are a lot of ticket splitters there. So they really will look at the individual candidates and their individual campaigns. And that's where, uh, you know, the job I have now being a consultant for for those type of campaigns is important. And frankly, you know, it's a lot of fun.
2: Now, will you guys be involved at all? There may be dueling things on the November ballot about early voting. Do you know if your firm's going to be involved? We're
1: not other? we're not engaged of that, but that okay. that goes to my point earlier about the presidential versus non-presidential. I mean, if you look at early voting, you look at photo idea, clearly the Republicans in the state would like fewer people to show up. they have better luck when fewer people vote. The Democrats have better luck. Uh, when more people vote. And that's that's what that photo ID issue is all about, and it's what the early voting now, issue is all about.
0: Yeah, let's talk about 2016 for a second, because while 2014 is important, I, I think the transportation tax issue is incredibly important for the state, whether it wins In or August. loses. Yeah. But 2016 is like political, um, I don't want to say Armageddon, but I'm saying it's a pretty climactic battle for the future of the state, um, because you have a lot of.
2: And the future for both parties. Yes,
0: exactly. You have a lot of offices that are going to be coming open. The governor's office will be open. The treasurer's office will be open. Um, You know, the attorney general's office will almost certainly be Be open. open. And Jason Kander will be be running for re-election. Who knows what Peter Kinder is going to do. Uh, What do you think the Democratic chances are going to be that year? Because obviously, Chris Coster has a lot of solid intangibles. I mean, he's won two statewide elections. He's like a fundraising machine, basically. But- you look at the rest of the ticket. There's not like an obvious, you know, ticket that materializes for the Democrats, whereas the Republicans seem to have a lot of people in the wings with a lot of money and potential that could fill all the t- statewide tickets what do you think the the democrats are going to need to do to kind of supplement Coster as a gubernatorial candidate
1: well look i, I think democrats stand a, a great chance uh in, in most presidential years like i said five of the six elections were won by democrats in 2012. i don't see why the same dynamic won't shape up in 16. Uh, in part you know obviously governor nixon's two Gubernatorial races why hard fought. I mean, he clearly was uh, – he clearly did a great job in both those races, won by double digits. That helps Democrats up and down the t- ticket. I think you have a chance with uh, Attorney General Coster to really uh, build on some of those coattails as well. I mean, he's, he's just a really good candidate. He's the type of brand that um, – that, that, that voters like to see uh, here in the state. And, and I think we'll have quality people up and uh, down the ticket. I think there's some real rising stars in our party um, that'll fill uh, some of those slots. Can you name a few? Well, sure. I, I mean, I, I think whether or not they want to run for statewide office right away or not, um, you know, you have names like uh, Representative John Wright. Uh, you have uh, here in St. Louis City, you have Tashara Jones, mm-hmm. uh, others that are just really good good at what they do and when the time's right i'm sure they'll take a look at, at, at races i'm not sure if that'll be in 16 or not but but this, the future's bright for for missouri you know this gets uh you know painted as a red state but really when you look down at the uh, statewide elections it's quite different and that's part of you know there's a map in missouri that works uh for for democrat candidates uh but you have to run a smart af- effective and efficient campaign I, I, yeah
2: what do you foresee you, yourself doing in twenty sixteen at this point, or I mean, do you expect to continue in political consulting? And is there is there a difficulty for political consultants of either party with um, the lack of donation limits and just some of the other things that have changed campaigns in the recent years? Uh,
1: no, I, 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 yes, absolutely. I, I will. Our firm will continue to be engaged. Uh, you know, in, in Kind of statewide races across the country. Do a lot of governors' races. Do some. What do you guys do?
2: And Jeff Rowe, who was our uh, previous guest, Republican, has a direct mail firm and all that. What What do you guys do? Sure.
1: I mean, we primarily are on the general consulting side, so we'll run races, uh, but we also do field. uh, We have a field firm. We have a phone firm. Okay. We do make uh, TV ads as well, so we do all of those. But we like to manage campaigns. I mean, that's the that's sort of the uh, what we like to do. And believe me, when you're the business we're in um there's no better feeling on election night when uh you know when you get that 50 plus percent plus one and it's a really accomplishment the other thing i like about political consulting is it's a real meritocracy i mean this is most candidates who run and lose never get another chance. Their political career is over. So when you look at, and, and certainly people have come back from losses, but on the average race, most mm-hmm. people lose and they're done. And so when they look at who are they gonna put to run, who are they gonna trot and trust to run their race or be part of their political team, they want the best. They want people that have good reputations. So they and want no winners. Earners. I was just
0: gonna say, I, I agree with you in some extent, but there are there is a record of people losing and coming back to win. The governor is a big example of that. Claire McCaskill is a big example of that. Blaine Luke Demire, And depending on what happens this year, Shane Scholler, the person that you vanquished in the Secretary of State's race, could become Green County clerk. And that's a pretty prominent clerkship, so to speak. But you're right. On average, I think you're right.
2: But is it it harder? I I think the point you're trying to make, though, is that for consultants, people who are trying to decide what firm they're going to hire, they're going to go with one that's that, that's on the side of the winner.
1: Yeah, and that's the good thing. I mean, in, uh, in a lot of industries uh, across America, it's who you know and, and you're networking and all that stuff. In the political consulting business, people want to hire people that know how to win. Um, because their livelihoods on the long, uh, line, their, their political futures on the line. And that's a, uh, I like that factor. And, and, and I think it bodes well for firms that, like ours that have sort of a, a proven track record.
2: Now, are there certain things that you must do to win? I mean, most people think, well, I think that while people decry negative ads, they work. So that's why the, I mean, there are certain points, certain key things that you tell a client look, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this.
1: And obviously, my background and, and the things I focus on in the campaign is message, right? Okay. How do you develop a message that works? And then, how do you implement a message? And a lot of people, a lot of consultants uh, will essentially tell you, and I think it's a misconception, that you should raise as much money as you can and, and throw it all on TV, and that's what's going to determine whether you win or lose. Um, and, and while that is important, take a look at the last two governor's races. Jay Nixon was supposed to run against Matt Blunt in 2008. Jay Nixon was supposed to run against Peter Kendrick in 2012. Well, they never actually even made it to that process because they had a flawed message and they were a flawed messenger, uh, whereas Jay Nixon clearly had a winning message. And I think that's one of the things that that we focus on is, 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 do you have a message? Can you deliver that message? And
0: one last question before we're kicked out of the studio. What do you think happens to Jay Nixon in 2016? I mean, we've talked a lot about other people. But I mean, you're right. He has won two governorships by wide margins. He's been bandied about as a a, a VP or even a dark horse presidential candidate if Hillary doesn't run. And there's obviously he could take a third crack at the U.S. Senate possibly. What do you think he'll be doing on 2016?
1: Uh, That's that's a really great question. I think he'll leave office with extremely high approval ratings. I think him and Kip Bond are really the two politicians I know that, that have a real brand in the state um then you know there's certainly other uh well-qualified very popular politicians but but i think that the governor will have uh options open you know i think he's clearly probably i think he's more interested in the executive branch yes yeah, so the it's open to an appointment so maybe, maybe maybe a cabinet official or something like that but again I, I don't know other than that if he continues to show great leadership like he has he continues to be very popular in a swing in a midwestern swing state um that i, I think he'll have a lot of uh, uh, options coming on to the vp List. So, oh uh, you'll just have to see i think that uh, you know his focus every day and and he'll tell you is sort of running the state and continuing to to make progress but uh, i think that uh you know if you leave uh governor of missouri Popular if you leave with a legacy behind, uh, you'll have a, a doors will open. I don't know what those hey, are. are hey, right
0: I mean, now. if he, nothing else happens to him, he was attorney general four times and governor twice and a state senator. That's pretty darn good in my book. And maybe
2: someday he will he will agree to come on politically speaking.
0: We're calling you out, governor. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining with us in studio. Uh, for all of our stories, you can follow us uh, at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe at...
2: J Manis, that's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you
0: can follow the very well-connected Jack Cardetti at...
1: At Jack Cardetti.
0: Amazing. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.